Hey, it's a Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories retold episode. These are the shows where we go back into the archives and grab an old episode that relates to something we've been talking about recently. And this week, that's something we've been talking about recently that we were relating to. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. It's Def Leppard. Uh, we've talked about him a few times on the show, but this is the quintessential episode all the way back on episode 44. That was pretty early. A couple of years ago where we talk about the big rock and roll story about Def Leppard, which is their drummer, the car wreck, the thing that almost threatened them at the height of their success. And they came back in the most spectacular of ways. It's a really cool, fun story. And of course, it also has some significance to to me about when I heard about it, which you're going to hear about. And of course, you know, it uh, happened in the 80s and it involved big hair. And so it's a very important to Murdoch. And it might be very important to you. Even if it's not, it is a great, it's like one of the top tier legendary rock and roll stories. So uh, hope you enjoy this. If you've heard it before, it will be somewhat familiar. If you haven't, thanks for going all the way back to episode 44 with us and enjoying it. And remember, you can always send your requests, or if you have a request for a specific retold episode or something you need a refresher on, you can send that to us too. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. And now, going back to 2021 for episode 44 of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Steph Leopard versus the car wreck. So this Her. story, this story Her. from rock history has become cultural shorthand for hard work and ingenuity. It's become a key moment in one of the most influential behind the music episodes ever for me personally, uh, huh. <laughs> which we will talk about. And okay. reference to it has even been immortalized in songs by other bands like this one. Do you know that song? That's a that's the Bloodhound Gang with a song called "Why Is Everybody Always Picking on Me?" with one of the catchiest refrains uh, that gets stuck what? in my head. Yeah, that talks about Rick Allen from Def Leppard. You know, and really, you think about it. Sometimes that's one of the more benign thing, benign catchy hooks they have. Generally, they're more <laughs> offensive than that. I mean, I don't really want my kids running around screaming that either, but it's definitely if you know next to a lot of the other uh, Bloodhound Gang hooks. That's probably the one I would play for. Yeah. Uh, by, by the by, the way, real quick Bloodhound Gang story. I got to see them. Really? Like, what was that pre, like? Pre, pre, like pre major label signing. Okay. And they had an EP out, and it was great. And it was like, I mean, it was pretty, pretty. Not a lot of cash spent on it. <laughs> and it was cra- it was total I remember the the opening song on the record was the opening song that they played and it, and, and the the salvo was go down down get it up get it up go down down get it up y'all go down and it's just these white guys just yelling this thing and one of them one of the guys like got straight arrested by the cops like directly <laughs> after the show and went down like down like jails right down there so, like, they just uh, took I down, you know down. Bloodhound Gang, not clearly in our wheelhouse, but maybe we should uh, explore that weird rock and roll joke rock band. Uh, because, man. Oh, we, but, but man, listen. If we're gonna, are we talking about Rick Allen? Oh, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about a, a British guy who I think gets honorary god dang American hero status. We're talking about Rick Allen, and we're talking about Def Leppard. <laughs> Oh, 
Def Leppard came up at a at a campfire this weekend with a stranger. Uh, well, I was going to say maybe with an acoustic guitar. I was I was picturing you singing that one step uh, away or whatever that like mid '90s hit they had that was acoustic. You remember that song? What was the name uh, of that no, song? I, I don't know what that. I oh no yeah, man, that was like that was they were still that was like the last big pop radio hit that they had that was like on top forty stations. God, I got to find what that's called. But no, tell tell me what happened. Why I was going to ask you about your love slash relationship with Def Leppard. So start with this weekend at the campfire. So uh, the first night it rained and it was fifty. It was fifty degrees. Um, so it was awful. Yeah. So I went and got into bed in the tent where it rained on top of the tent, but about six or seven feet away from us were people that just drank until two o'clock in the morning. Nice. Like, I respect um, that. And so I, lis- I was listening to nothing but a good time. I was listening to the audio book. Uh, and we're going to get to interview um, the authors here in a, a, like a couple months. And, and so someone asked me, they were like, you, you where'd you go last night? I was like, I went to bed at like 10 o'clock. They're like, what did you do? I was like, I, I was listening to a book. And they're like, what book? And I'm expecting at this point for them to ask me. And I'm like, well, I'm reading this thriller uh, that's about um, this mass murderer who's from Scandin. It's like, I have to be like, now I'm reading this book about the 80s hard rock metal band. <laughs> it's so good too, man. And, it's so and good. She said, and she said, she said, listen, there's nothing wrong with some Def Leppard. <laughs> and and we're hanging out and something happens and all of a sudden Foolin from Pyromania comes nice. on. And I was like, it's, and I out loud, I'm like, it's fucking Death Leopard. And I realized <laughs> I haven't seen people in a good 14 or 15 months and I'm losing my mind. So I'm excited. So, so, so very early Death Leopard was huge because it was, it was different. Like, well, they're British guys. There's very- uh, there's a lot of stuff I didn't know about Def Leppard that we're going to get to, but I do think that we have to start with the behind the music because honestly, it's just a weird, very personal thing for for me in particular. Like this, if, if somebody was to ask me about how I felt about VH1 behind the music or to talk about specifically like close your eyes. What do you think of when I say behind the music? It's the Def Leppard episode for me. And really? Yeah. Oh yeah. For a couple of reasons. And one of them is the story we're going to talk about today, because this is one of the greatest rock and roll stories, modern rock and roll stories ever. Like it's just unbelievable. And you know, the more details you get, the more amazing it is. Uh, But if I'm being really honest, the other reason that this is the, the episode that sticks out is a very particular moment. Now, imagine this came out in 98. So I likely saw it when I was roughly 15 years old. Okay. Jeez. Oh my God. And, and wow. And I was a preacher's kid and I was not supposed to be watching MTV or VH1, but I was doing this at my grandparents' house and I heard this, it. Hey, this is so important. Had you not seen the Motley crew when yet? I no, 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 no. I still don't know that I have. So, so here oh. is, here is the, the moment, 22 minutes in, of okay. this documentary that blew my innocent mind. Performing in the round presented new challenges for the band, but the boys dealt with the situation in their own wild way. When you're running around trying to cover four sides of a stage, there comes a moment when you need a break. And so they manufactured this moment in the show whereby the, all the guitar players would all go underneath the stage and Joe and Rick would be left on the stage. I'm going around the whole crowd doing this whole winding them up, getting them going. 
while this is going on, underneath the stage, where Rick Savage and Phil and, and, and Steve Clark are, and all the roadies and any other guests that happen to be around, would be in there with a whole load of women. It would be like Sodom and Gomorrah going on for 20 minutes. Their passport into the under the stage area was they had to take their tops off and get their tits out. That was the bargain. There would be 60 naked girls, and I mean with nothing on, you know, completely. Mothers and daughters performing sexual acts. Satyricon, that's what it was. Fellini's Satyricon, almost. These, these weird little sex scenes going on. Some nights it got a little crazier than others. They would photograph all this. Inevitably, like, Rick Allen and Joe Elliott come out of it really squeaky clean, because, of course, they were never below the stage. <laughs> but the others were. So at least he made a biblical reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, because I definitely knew what that was when I was well, when I was fifteen. And wow, little impressionable Brian. <laughs> so there you are at fifteen, and they've blown it for you. Like that's what Motley Crue would do when Tommy would play his drum solo, because his drum solo was fairly long, and they would they would get girls under the stage, uh, and and, and there that's when stuff like that would happen. I mean, so I found I found out about that because it's yeah, that became like part of the whole mystique of the whole thing about what exactly were these guys doing, and you know it's like it was a it's crazy now when you think about it, um, and I I'm so happy that that threw that was a great rock and roll moment for you <laughs> because that must have been <laughs> every time I hear Def Leppard I think about that I'm like man those guys performing in the round. Uh, yeah. So so one of the main things about the story that I didn't really have straight in my memory until revisiting for the research is the timing of when this happened in Def Leppard's career. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It, as you already pointed out, we're going all the way back to the beginning of this band, and we need to set up who they were before any of this happened. Uh, and so to do that, we go back to England, and we start at a stop, a bus stop, 1977, 18-year-old kid named Joe Elliott's trying to catch a, catch a bus, and he misses it. And in the moments after he misses this bus, standing in the exhaust fumes, he meets a guy named Pete Willis. And this guy has a band called Atomic Mass, and they're looking for a guitar player. And, and Joe says, oh, I play guitar. And so he gets an invite. He goes to an audition. And when he does, the band is like, actually, you might maybe be better to be the singer of this band as opposed to the guitar player. And so they end up playing their first gig in the school cafeteria. And while Joe is making posters in an art class, he comes up with this phrase he likes, spelled out the correct way, D-E-A-F-L-E-O-P-A-R-D, Def Leppard. And as he shows it to the band, and the band's like, this is cool, but we we got to make it like punk. Like we got to make it, or, or that looks kind of punk, so we got to make it less punk. We got to stylize it and do something. So they take out the extra letters, and they make it Def Leppard, as we all now all know it. Uh, Steve Clark joins the band after auditioning. But like I heard this story that the way they got Steve Clark to audition was to just play Freebird in its entirety. No, <laughs> I, is that really? That's what I ran across in the research. I don't know if that's true or not. But I love the idea of anyone forcing anyone else to play start to finish Freebird as a guitar player with no accompaniment. Like that's that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. So, okay. uh, do you know how old Rick Allen was when he joined Def Leppard? Oh, man. He he was a kid. 
Wasn't he? He was like a he was... literal kid. I did not know this. So he was a, roughly the age that I saw the Def Leppard documentary. <laughs> was the age that he joined Def Leppard when he was? And this is what I love. There's so many unsupportive parents in rock and roll stories, right? Parents who do, who want their kids to cut their hair and get a real job. Not Rick Allen's parents. Rick Allen's mother replies on his behalf to an advertisement placed by a band called Def Leppard, who were looking for uh-huh. a drummer to replace Tony Kenning. And was he 15? He was, he, was, he was, yeah, he was four, well, 14, 15, right? Uh, wow. at, yeah. Leopard loses skins was the advertisement's headline to announce that Def Leopard didn't have a drummer and needed one. Leopard loses skins. Uh, he later joined the band on November 1st, 1978, which was his 15th birthday. And in 1979, he dropped out of high school to be in Def Leopard. Did you That's- know that? No. So, what what did you do for your 16th birthday? Do you remember? Uh, I had a car, and I think I went somewhere. Um, That's about it. Okay, so... What what did Rick Allen do for his 16th birthday? (laughs) Tell me. He he opened for ACDC at the Hammersmith Odeon. (laughs) That's That's not what you did? That's not what your 16th birthday was like? I, you know, like, um, Rick Allen came up this weekend too, but man, these are things that we did not talk about. I did not know he was a kid, a minor. This is, this is actually funny because if you try to look to read about Rick Allen much, you get pushed to the main part of this story very, very quickly. And you don't get, like, you have to dig around to find these stories about his childhood. There's actually, I found an interview, a recent interview from the last few years in which he actually tells the story of going and, and I guess his mom drives him to meet Joe Elliott the first time. And they're meeting in a bathroom at a restaurant and they're standing in the bathroom with this 14 year old kid asking him and they made him audition. So he auditioned against other drummers and they still chose him. Um, and so this is interesting. You got to hold on to this because this is 78 when he turns 16. Okay. Or 79 when he turns 16. So if you start to do the math, you realize this accident that we're going to talk about happens in 84. So he is very young when the accident happens. He's 21 years old. And all, all the cards were against that guy. All of that every All everything of everything everything that you could have imagined. It, it, so I'm sure you're going to talk about it. Like so, yeah. It was it was miraculous that it was he was still the drummer. Yeah, I I can't believe it. I can't believe. I mean, it says something to me about who these guys are. The guys in the band that. The, the the choices they make when this happens, where they were in their career. We're going to get to all this, but yes, it, it, it gives me a lot of respect for, for Joe Elliott and the rest of the guys in Def Leppard. Um, so let's go back to where we are here. Okay, 1980, the first record comes out. It's called On Through the Night. They tour, and ACDC's producer is now paying attention, and he's interested in working with him in the studio. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy. Uh, his, name is, his name is Mutt Lang. Have you heard of Mutt Lang? Yeah, uh, he he produced uh, Back in Black. He produced Highway to Hell. He married Shania. Twain. I was going to say he produced he a lot of Heartbreak in Shania Twain. Yeah, <laughs> he, <laughs> he basically got, produced he got, a mental he, breakdown in her. 
he got divorced from Shania Twain. He produced Pyromania. He produced uh, and and produced Hysteria. So Mutt Lang, they record High and Dry. It doesn't sell that well, but there is a song on it called Bring It On The Heartbreak. Remember that one? Bring it on the heartbreak. And- there's another key ingredient anytime we talk about the early 80s, uh, and this is going to come up when we talk uh, to the guys about the book, uh, Nothing But a Good Time, that you were talking about, where MTV really changes the game for a lot of these bands. And bringing on the heartbreak with a good video turns Def Leppard into uh, a bit of a thing. People are paying attention. They go back in the studio, uh, and they're doing lots and lots and lots of drugs. And lots of drinking. There's actually a moment in the behind the music. This is another very influential moment in 15-year-old Brian's life. Uh, They tell this story about deciding to keep all the empty bottles during one of the recording sessions just to see, like, what they'd been doing so they could go back and look. You want to know the count? They give the count. One of them gives the count. I want to hear the cumulative count of the bottles, yeah. He offhandedly says... 170 bottles of vodka, 150 bottles of scotch, and mountains, quote, mountains of beer cans. <coughs> so take that for what oh. it's worth. Uh, wow. Well, and it should be pointed out that, I mean, we can laugh about that, but it, it is sad because it leads to the first to the exit of Pete Willis, who was at right. that bus stop to meet Joe Elliott. He's out now. He gets fired because of his substance abuse. And the next guy... The next guy. The next day, they replace him with a guy whose claim to fame is twofold. Okay, one, he was in this glam band called Girl, which a very influential band for different reasons. Uh, and when they broke up, they all went into different other bands, right? One of them joins LA Guns, and, and our guy here, he joins Def Leppard. But he's also of note because he has a name incredibly similar to... Another famous rocker from that time period. His name is Phil Collin. C O L L E N. Not to be confused with Phil Collins, who has had plenty of microphone time on rock and roll bedtime stories in the past. Go look those episodes up. Um so new guy in the band, but they managed to finish recording this new album with Mutt, and it turns out to be a project that they call, and you've already said this. What's the name of this record? This this one is Pyromania. And it features this little song called Photograph. Uh, right. Photograph knocks Michael Jackson's Beat It out of the most requested spot on MTV and sells six million copies. If you're listening to this show right now, there is scientifically a 34% chance that you have the album art from Pyromania tattooed somewhere in your nether regions. And and also, just to point out, it's funny, Brian, uh, <laughs> but, but also to point out, like, from the get-go where... Def Leppard broke out of being sort of a, one of the new wave of British heavy metal bands is that they had harmonies. So yeah. like when when you put when you try to put them in that category of these other like eighties British metal bands like that that Metallica would say that they were influenced by, Def Leppard falls out as soon as they start writing harmonies, and it yeah. makes them it it makes they, they it makes hits. You know, like yeah, hysteria has down tempo stuff, but like photograph, yep, um, and rock of ages, like that thing at the beginning of rock of ages. What the hell is he saying right there? It's like it's backwards. So, Mutt, um, Mutt has a lot to do with this, and we're going to talk about this when we get to hysteria, yeah. right? Because Mutt ends up being the mastermind that makes that album what it is. But I want to know just offhandedly what your favorite, if you had to pick one, your your favorite Def Leppard tune. <laughs> 
It's is photograph or rock of ages. Okay. Easy. Good choices. Good choices. I might go animal. I don't know. I like that photograph a lot. That's your favorite, yeah. But the one I a was thinking of, of earlier is Two Steps Behind. Do you remember that? It was on the last action hero soundtrack in like '93. I'm totally out. It's I a ballad. Know what it is. Yeah, it's a ballad. Well, it's '93 too, so we're not even going to get to '93 today uh, right. when we talk about them. But um, okay, so interesting side note, real quickly about Pyromania. It's a massive hit everywhere, kind of, but it's actually a bigger hit in America than it is in Britain. Yes, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So timeline. Think about Bush. Think about Bush. Yeah. 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 Like Gavin, true. Gavin Rosdale's from the UK, and like they thought those guys were awful. <laughs> we thought they were amazing. So timeline so yeah, check. That album drops in '83, January. They start right. touring to support it in February as a support act for Billy Squire. So they start. This is one of those great oh. ascension stories. Oh my gosh! They start as a support act for Squire, and by the end of the tour, they're headlining in front of fifty-five thousand people in San Diego. Wow! And Everybody wants you. Gong, gong, gong. <laughs> I like to think that he plays the Christmas song I like by Billy Squire that we've talked about a lot right. on this show. I like to think he he just plays that. Every gig, even when it's like the middle of July and he's doing an outdoor show. If it's you're in my, if we could actually write the set list, it would open with In the Dark and then the second song and closer would be the Christmas song. Yeah. Just yeah. get him in and out. A hundred percent. That's him. A hundred percent. So, okay. So they start opening as an opener in the beginning of January and then they're playing stadiums by the end of the year. It's it's unbelievable. And okay. here we come to probably my favorite line in the Wikipedia entry that I had to be like, wait, what? Following their breakthrough, the band moved to Dublin in February of 1984 for tax purposes. What? Yeah, sure. So the Stones Stones did that. Yeah. So I laughed at first, but I did a little digging, and this is a whole thing. Bowie, uh, the Stones, Rod Stewart, yeah. tons of artists did this because the British tax rate on royalties literally, Mark. 95%. Now, I'm a Let liberal. Me that tell seems a little high. How it will be, Taxman. Yeah. yeah there's yeah. one for you. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. there's 19 for whatever the whole thing. Taxman by the Beatles one about British me. tax rates. Exile on Main Street by the Stones. The whole album is a rock and roll bedtime story of its own, centered around the band being broke and becoming tax, tax exiles in France. In the yeah. 70s and 80s, Many rockers, at least temporarily, encamped to tax havens around the world, and one of the best ones, I guess, was Dublin. Uh, but David Bowie, Mark Boland, they moved to Switzerland. Cat Stevens went to Brazil. Rod Stewart and Bad Company went to California. Ringo Starr moved to Monte Carlo in 1975. And in an interview, he told Howard Stern that he pays, quote, zero taxes. Uh, even the police's frontman, Sting who sang I Don't Want to Be No Tax Exile in 1978's Dead End Job, uh, left for Ireland for two years. Or two years later, he left for Ireland after after did, singing that song. Did you say that Ringo told Howard that he pays no taxes? <laughs> yes, that's what he said. Wow, that's, that's, said. that's a that's a bold. I guess it's a beetle. Yeah, you can do whatever gonna, you want. You can do whatever. If you're you want. gonna if you're gonna make a bold ass statement about not paying taxes, <laughs> pick like try what else? Uh, is there another? Is there another crew of people can get away with? Nope with saying that no you know so today musicians set up their bands as corporations and and, and they do it in tax havens so like the netherlands luxembourg right. the british virgin islands i didn't know yeah. any of this uh they hire financial uh, advisors and they you know they find the loopholes but there was this was a whole thing in the 70s and 80s crazy so anyway 
this sets the scene for what happens in this next chapter of Def Leppard. They they go to Dublin and they're trying to record the follow up to Pyromania. Oh. Do do they have a little bit of pressure on them? Yes, yes they do. Um, and uh, they live in the same house. Okay. And they party too much. And Mutt Lang actually quits saying, I'm just too exhausted. The band has to hire a guy to come in and help them write the follow-up. And this is somebody who we are very familiar with on this show. We have done a whole episode that involved him called Meatloaf versus the Ghosts. Jim Steinem. Jim Steinman came in to write Hysteria with Def Leppard. Kiss my grits, Donna. (laughs) What the hell are you talking about? So they hired the meatloaf guy Steinman, to, to write the song. Steinman they- comes in, and what is he known for? Right, like think about this. He's known for "Bad Out of Hell." He's known for these productions, and he tells them basically, "Here's what you got to do. You got to go raw. You got to turn down all the production. You got to just write a bunch of songs, and we got to record them live." And I mean, he's just trying to sell them on this whole thing. Now, this is stupid because this is not what Def Leppard just sold six million copies of something doing, right? Like you already talked about the harmonies, and you already talked about the production, right? And and we're gonna get to what Mutt ends up doing later because spoiler alert, Mutt comes back. You've already mentioned that. Uh, but Steinman tells them, "No, no, 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 no. Listen to me. I'm the meatloaf guy." You got to get rid of everything. You got to go super raw. And it goes terribly. They clash. They don't get along at all. The band ends up buying him out of his contract and are immediately in a budget shortfall because they now they have a bunch of unusable songs, which I would love to hear. What did those songs sound like? I don't know, man. So, but, but do you know, like, okay, keep going. I don't want to interrupt because I know we're going to go somewhere before we get somewhere else. So I'll keep, keep talking. Well, now we, we, we are about to get to the main course of this Def Lep dinner. Yeah. Uh, remember, they started in this Dublin exile recording trip in January or February. I'm sorry. And now we're all the way to New Year's Eve, 1984. So they've spent yes. most of a year, most of a year, and they have got nothing to show for it. New Year's Eve. They go home for the holidays, and Rick Allen calls his girlfriend, and he's going out driving in his Corvette. Because, yes, he has a Corvette. Because he just sold six million copies of Pyromania, and he's 21 years old. You're impressing your girlfriend. You're a rock star. You're going really fast. Uh, And there's an Alfa Romero that comes up and starts speeding up and slowing down next to you, right? Kind of messing with him. And Rick keeps trying to pass him, and every time he does, the guy makes it impossible. He speeds back up, or he slows back down, or whatever. Rick gets pissed, tries to pass him on a corner, and rolls the car. Hits a wall, rolls the car. So the seatbelt swipes his arm clean off. I didn't know that. Wow. And he remains conscious. So he's in shock, but he never passes out. So... Remember, they're out in the middle of nowhere. And luckily, the first two people to find him, like the guy was living somewhat right, because listen to this. The first two people to find him, a nurse and an off-duty cop who live nearby. They hear the noise, they come out. The girlfriend's like out of the car wandering around, like totally in in a daze, right? And this nurse named Doreen comes up to see what the matter is, and she sees there is a boy with this girl. And the first thing he says to her is, I'm a famous drummer, and I've lost my arm. So... Oh, oh my gosh. She leans down and starts staunching the bleeding with a handkerchief she has. Up over the wall comes a guy. She looks up. It's her neighbor from down the road, this cop. And the cop neighbor says, what can I do? And she says, go find his arm. 
this dude climbs into the car and finds his arm and wow. brings it to him and they put it in the ambulance with him. Rick is rushed to the hospital and they reattach his arm. Wow. So you might notice if you've seen a picture of Rick Allen does not look like he has that second arm. Uh, right, yeah. He, they, they can't, it takes, but the limb gets infected, and they have to re-amputate it. They have to take yeah. it off again. So he yeah. loses it twice. And the doctors literally tell him, if we don't get this infection under control, it's going to go into your other arm. And you're going to lose both of them. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you alluded to this earlier. Typically, this happens to me or you. We're like, okay, guess we're not a drummer anymore. Yeah, or, you know, the guys that are in the band with you uh, completely walk out. Right, right. So the band goes to see him in the hospital, and the first thing he says to them is, don't worry, guys, I'm still going to play drums. (laughs) (laughs) And and the band, to their credit, and this is what I was saying earlier, I I, kind of love this, they they don't replace him. They say, listen, we're just, we'll go on a hiatus. So they have... The success of Pyromania. This is what I'm talking about, the timing of this story. They have the success of Pyromania. They have all this pressure to deliver the follow-up. They This happens. They've already wasted a year because they hired Jim freaking Steinman to come in and help them create the album. And now they're facing this, and they, they just say, you know what? Don't worry about it. So he comes back. Into the recording studio. How long do you think it took? Uh, nine months. Six weeks. Six weeks after the accident. What? This is insane to me. He starts spending eight hours a day to master this electric kit that lets him use his foot to play the beats that his left hand would have played. And what's really interesting is like if you see in interviews or if you see in the behind the music he explains he's like you know it's like all of the information is in my brain it's just getting my brain to deliver it to the right place and i've never thought about it that way right but he's he's like i've already learned it i just had to retrain which limb was doing the work yeah and instead of playing you know some guys imagine before there was that double kick pedal for like the And guys were playing the, you know, the double bass drums with two two feet. Like, well, you got a second foot. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the thing, it's like I'd forgotten a while, but like I remember watching and seeing how he was doing it was, well, it was it was pretty remarkable, you know. So what he learned, I can't believe six weeks is. is I, I can't uh, believe six weeks either. Now it he he isn't back on stage in six weeks, but he's back trying to relearn stuff in six weeks, which is just unbelievable to me so my favorite little tidbit about this though and and when he finds out or when he figures out that he can show the band um and he's like okay i think i've got enough together to like invite everybody in he he invites them in and he gets them all this is just amazing he gets them all to play along with this and he goes, he, he just gets everybody queued up and he starts this beat. <laughs> just imagine this moment. And so like you can, in the research I found that they basically said like, 
it was very emotional. I mean, they thought they had lost their drummer, maybe lost their friend, like actually lost their friend forever. And now, a few months later, he invites them in and he starts playing Led Zeppelin. And they're all just like crying, playing when the levee breaks in the studio together, which is just like, gives me chills. What an amazing story, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's just far out, really. So from there... uh, The band gets an invite to do some European dates with Ozzy and Bon Jovi that are called it's called the Monsters of Rock Tour. Yes, absolutely. So this wait, wait. So I'm a familiar with the tour, but what year is the tour? Uh they, this this is eighty six. Okay. All right, because they did they did multiple Monsters of Rock. Yeah, tours. so this is eighty six. Okay, and this is gonna be it. Brick's big return. They want to make sure he's ready, so they book some club dates. And and to cushion the whole thing, they invite this guy they know named Jeff Rich. And they basically, for the club dates, they put two sets on the stage, two drum sets. And they put Rick at one and they put Jeff at the other. And Jeff's there to fill in, right? So they'll both play. And basically, there's no pressure on Rick, right? So they play two dates this way and they go pretty well. And on the third date, Jeff's flight gets delayed. He's meeting the band and his flight gets delayed. He gets to the gig, and they've the band's already been on for 45 minutes. The rest of Def Leppard doesn't really realize that Jeff isn't there. Oh, man. How <laughs> awesome is that? After the show, he goes, uh, Jeff Rich goes up to Rick and says, bro, I'm out. You've got it. You don't need me anymore. And he packs up and he takes off. August 1986. Reminder, the accident happened December 31st, 1984. So roughly 20 months yeah. later, Rick Allen heads back onto an arena-sized stage with one arm, a souped-up drum kit, and one of the most badass comeback stories of all time. 70,000 people lose their minds cheering as he walks on stage. And from that day on, Rick becomes known as the Thunder God. And he's the and this is August of 86, right? August of 86. So this is still a whole year before hysteria, before comes, hysteria out. comes out. Yep, and that's what we're going to talk about now, right? Whatever happened to that follow-up album that they were trying to record? The album that is now three years in the making. So it, it, it kind of, we've alluded to this, it kind of starts to come back together when they get Mutt Lang back on board. He comes back on board as producer. He ends up meticulously constructing this record out of bits and pieces of multiple takes. So part of the reason that record sounds the way it does is like, he Frankenstein the thing. Yeah. And uh, he had a strategy. And now I remember I went to look at the track listing. Because uh, once you mentioned this, I like flipped over and I looked up Hysteria. And I looked at the track listing. And there's 12 tracks and seven of them are singles. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's like Thriller, and that's yep. why it sold like 20 million records. Yeah, it's like it's it looks like a greatest hits record if you read the back of it. And he was using techniques like MIDI, and he was using sampling. I'm talking about Lang when they were doing this. Right. He he was not making them sound raw and real, quote unquote, like Steinman. Right? He went uh, heavy, heavy layers of overdubbing. There's so much production on that record. That is a Mutt Lang record as much as it's a Def Leppard record, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they released Woman or whatever is the first single like oh. pour some sugar on me is like four or five like dude, deep dude in number of singles isn't that weird dude you know what i love about you is I, you literally you okay murdoch cannot see my notes and he's just railing through about uh, three paragraphs of my notes about the time they, I'm trying. He, no this is what i try to explain to people i'm like this show would not work 
if Murdoch is not in the room because Murdoch is a freaking Wikipedia entry on on uh, these bands and on these stories, and I love it. So, uh, yeah, recording in this slow and time-consuming manner has two results. It's a major step forward for the band musically, but it also costs so much to finish that they're basically under the gun to sell 5 million units just to break even, just to break even. Now, Pyromania, 6 million, and that was a huge success in an outlier, right? So they basically have to sell almost the same amount just to not be in debt. And the finished product features the now timeless tracks, most of which you've named Animal, Pour Some Sugar on Me, Love Bites, Armageddon It. They choose to call the new album Hysteria. Guess whose idea that is? That's Rick Allen's. He says, you know, it's a pretty good reflection of the madness of our own lives. Um, he says the upside was the record sounded great, Alan said of the recording. The downside was everybody's lives were going to shit. Uh, finally released on August 3rd, 1987, Hysteria was an immediate hit in England, but you just you just mentioned this. In the U.S., they released Women as the first single and not Animal, which was the lead single for everybody else. So right. it doesn't do great in the States for another year. So add another yeah. year on top of that delay between Pyromania and Hysteria. And then the album dominated the world charts for the better part of the next three years, eventually selling more than 20 million copies. They needed 5 million to break even. They have sold yeah. more than 20 million copies worldwide. They and stretched that. It was a long tail. They they released single, at least a single in 89. Yep. Yeah, like, they, they rode that sucker for years. I mean, they, hey, it yes, took them amazing. years to get out there. Like, I'm glad they were able to ride it for a while. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to get my head around a record that cost millions of dollars first. And it doesn't now. And then thinking about how you owe that advance. Oh, man. Uh, oh, man. And yeah. the taxes, 95% tax rate. That's a real thing. That's insane. And so what happened? What, what's Rick Allen doing now? Where, If we were going to do another great VH1 show, uh, where are they now? What would we find out about Rick? So as recently as like a week and a half ago, he was doing an art show in Florida. This is a thing. He, he does uh, pieces of art now. Some of them are drum themed. Some of them are. But he spends a lot of his time and a lot of his resources and a lot of his uh, the money that he makes doing that. Um uh, funding things like Wounded Warrior Project and a uh, nonprofit he set up for himself to really uh, set up himself to help folks who have had traumatic injuries and coming back from wow. them and dealing with the mental health. A really interesting thing that I read is that he was still dealing. He said he's never really dealt with a PTSD of that until the mid 2000s. Like between yeah. 2006, 2010, around in there is when he started like going to therapy and working through the PTSD. Um, wow. that's amazing. Yeah. It was that long. Do you I know, know what happened? Do you know what happened to him and his second wife and happened to their marriage? Do you know what happened to that marriage, dude? I, I don't. Oh, this is awful. So he got arrested. Rick Allen did, um, for, for assaulting his wife and he had to do, um, community service and had to go and had to do AA stuff. So he was dealing with an alcohol issue this is 95 so you've got like a whole you know six years post hysteria at this point i mean you know in like 20 million records in 89 like uh, i guess that's the biggest band in the world right right um so yeah so that happened to him and they split about five years after that and then he got married then so he's been married like it was like 2010 or something he remarried 
And I guess he's still married to that person. Yeah. And maybe that's when he, he started like kind of really going at it. It says a lot to think about that. It took him 20 years to actually look at how that accident I know. really changed him. Well, he Versus was so he was like just kind of drip. And he was also, yeah, he was re he was 22. Right. Right. Well, yeah, 21, 22. And, and and I mean, t to point out just to really drive home how young he was when this whole Def Leppard thing started, he is now only 57, Murdoch. Like, he's not that old now. <laughs> so that's crazy yeah. to me. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not saying this to blow smoke or anything. I'm just being dead honest from my own personal opinion is that I saw them, I don't know how many years ago I saw them, but like they were, you know, it's like I've seen some of these bands from the era that are a hot mess, man. And like, you know, it's a joke. And like, they're no freaking joke. I mean, yeah. like, what's his name? Phil Collin wears no shirt on and he's full on like, look at look at the eight pack abs. Like he's like a brick <laughs> shit house. And and Joe Elliott wears the the Union Jack t shirt and they sound great. Um, I mean, and it's still band, most yeah. of that band. I mean, they haven't replaced a ton of those guys. There's a few Just side one. stories we didn't get into. One of them yeah. dies in the 90s. Yeah. Um, and they kicked out Pete early on because of the, the substance abuse. But the, the core group is still together Phil and Joe and. Rick, um, and and man, it's just, it's unbelievable. What a story. What a band. I'm so glad we finally got a Def Leppard episode, man. Man, I'm I'm really glad that you did, too. I can't believe it. it's, like, taken, taken this long. Well, we're starting to get those notes where people are like, hey, guys, you've done how many episodes and you haven't done this one? Like, there's some that are so big and so kind of part of the pantheon that we have almost forgotten, right? And so I've been I've been slowly working through some of those and I think we'll have some of those more episodes coming up where we'll go back and get the get the ones where we're like, "Oh yeah, how do we possibly forget that one?" Um but we have yeah. done an episode on, you know, uh the uh, Keith uh from the Stones snorting his dad's ashes. Like, you know, <laughs> but we haven't done the right. Def Leppard drummer story, right. so and, and and think about this, you know, the the way the paths just cross with a, a lot of this, we had an episode about Tawny Katane sort of in memoriam, yeah, like yeah. real recently. And we got to talk about white snake um, and how that was a revolving door of characters in that band. Right. And Coverdale seemed like he was just kind of a, uh, well, you know, kind of a shitty boss. Let's just say yeah. that. Right. And Vivian Campbell was in that band for a hot minute. And Vivian's well known for Dio, really. Like, that's his his main thing. Like, you know, hold a diver. But like Vivian Campbell has been in, in Def Leppard since 1992. Do you know that? Wow. I know I didn't realize that. He, he replaced Steve Clark. So Steve Clark's uh... who passed away. So so Vivian Campbell has been in that band for almost 30 years. Wow. Right. Wow, yeah. So other than like he's the he's the new guy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Hey, if you have anything to add about Def Leppard or a story we might have missed that we need to 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 put into the hopper, um, send us a note. You can do that at we are the story guys at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at the story guys. And until next time, we need you to keep doing something. Pouring some sugar on you and telling some stories. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> 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 <laughs>